The Veterans Benefits Administration hopes to accelerate its use of automation tools this summer to help keep pace with its workload and set new records on the number of claims it can process in a year. Increased automation is at the center of VBA's five-year automation plan. But despite its best efforts, VBA anticipates a surge in new benefits claims is going to lead to an uptick in that backlog. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. So it sounds like they're really paddling against the current here with a new paddle, though, and these new tools. What are they looking to install here, Jory? Yeah, a couple things are in the works here. VBA is processing claims faster than ever, but it's also getting more claims than ever, thanks in part to the Toxic Exposure Pact Act, is really adding to their workload here. So to keep going with this increased output here, what they're trying to do is try to roll out smart search tools uh, later this summer that will make it easier for VBA employees to search through a veteran's file, pull up things like medical exams and their military service records so that they can skip through those steps more quickly and ultimately go through the claim and give that thumbs up or thumbs down decision on the benefits claim. They're also looking to roll out some automated data ingestion tools that would pre-populate some of the fields in a, in a given application that they have to work on. Right now, it's pretty modest. It's a browser extension on Google Chrome, and, and eventually they're looking to add it as a permanent feature of the Veterans Benefits Management System, the overall kind of engine that drives so much of their work. Yeah, so it sounds like they also need an upgrade in the IT underlying all of these tools. Are they working on that also? Absolutely. Automation is just one piece of the puzzle with their broader modernization agenda over at VBA. One other thing in the works here is they're looking to modernize their national work queue, which is the system that batches claims to the agency's 16 regional offices all across the country. It, through some algorithm work, it assigns uh, a number of claims to each office based on the number of employees that they have. And what they're trying to do is modernize that in such a way that VBA employees are not standing idle once they've completed their workload for the day. The way it typically works now is they have to go back to their supervisor and say, hey, I finished what was on my plate and I'm ready for more. Then they have to find more cases for that employee to work on. So they're trying to reduce that downtime. Got it. So they're not just using a cattle prod to get more productivity from the workforce, but they want to stage the work in a sounds like a more efficacious manner. Yeah, yeah, they're just trying to reduce those handoffs, as the VEA is is fond of saying in, in kind of explaining the way they do business here. You know, VBA is also trying to get greater productivity from its workforce while managing burnout. Given everything that we're talking about here, VBA grew its workforce by about 15% over the last year and a half. They've been really aggressive with the hiring, as so much of VA has. They now have more than 28,000 employees across the country. One element of this, and this is familiar from some other reporting I've done, they had to roll out some mandatory overtime to deal with this caseload that they're dealing with. Last month, we heard from the new Undersecretary for Benefits, Joshua Jacobs. He is very aware of this mandatory overtime and its impact on the workforce in terms of burnout. So in July through the end of August, they're going to have a mandatory overtime respite for the workforce, just keeping in mind that it's also uh, peak time for va- for vacation requests. Interesting. Yeah, that, that idea of mandatory overtime just happens in a lot of agencies. We just talked about it the other day at the passport office. Uh, and so, and we see it all across Homeland Security, even Health and Human Services. And getting back to VBA, the benefits claims backlog, what's the latest there? 
Yeah, well, just again, given the nature of the PACT Act and the new claims that are coming in, BBA set a record last year when it completed more than 1.7 million benefits claims. But so far in this fiscal year, in fiscal 2023, BBA has seen a 31% increase in the volume of new claims coming in. And we're still have a couple of months into the fiscal year here. So they are just dealing with this crushing workload we recently heard from Raymond Telez, VA's Acting Assistant Deputy Undersecretary for Automated Benefits Delivery, quite the mouthful there, but he told members of the House VA Committee that these automation tools that we've been talking about, he's hoping that this, these automation tools are going to drive down the backlog within the next two years, but things are going to go up before they go down. We are factoring two years because of the sort of conservative approach that we are doing for automation. Uh, change is hard. Our employees have been through the last 10 years, some huge transformation. So we're being very thoughtful. All right. He's being thoughtful. What about the VBA workforce? Are they thinking the same way about those tools? Well, the House VA committee also heard from David Bump. He wears a couple of hats. He is a VBA authorization quality review specialist. He's also a national representative for the American Federation of Government Employees National VA Council. He says with all of this change going on, all these things in the works in terms of IT modernization, he really says that VBA employees need a greater seat at the table when the agency plans to roll out these new tools. He says that under the current process, he says that VBA employees often end up beta testing software and having to deal with some of the bugs and some of the usability problems once those new tools go live. Every time VBMS gets upgraded, there are workarounds that result. And those workarounds, not only do you have to remember what all of them are, but they add to the time that it takes to process a claim. Because you have to, in some cases, manipulate VBMS. You have to manipulate the system to get it to provide the right result. Yeah, that's a lot of keyboard shortcuts to memorize, I guess, Jory. And what does VBA say about that? Do they generally keep the union in the loop when they're planning upgrades or brand new applications to roll out? Well, to Les, who we heard from earlier, he did say that VBA does keep employees in the loop. They have regular calls with staff as these things are in the works and they do usability testing. They have employees, you know, kick the tires on things that are in the works. And so he says that there's certainly more opportunities to do that, but that is, you know, a regular practice of VBA to do all these things. And you know, I will say, going back to those workarounds that Bump was mentioning, that is very familiar language to what we hear with the VA and their rollout of a new electronic health record, that there are workarounds they have to do with that system, and it is driving down productivity in that side of VA over at the Veterans Health Administration. Yeah, that thing is one big workaround, I guess, for what people that would rather be using Vista, which they're familiar with and gets the job done, but we'll see how it goes there. And just to reiterate, the rise in backlogs and the number of caseloads that are coming in, that is as a result of the burn pit legislation specifically, correct? That is one of the key drivers here. And so what Telez told lawmakers is that the backlog will probably peak around 400,000 cases sometime between now and 2024. And by the 2025 timeframe, he expects that that backlog will drop dramatically and fall below 100,000 claims. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today.
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.